0: Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us tonight as we continue our study through the book of Exodus. Today we've got a special, it's two for one. We're gonna look at chapters 17 and 18. So if you have your Bible or an iPad or whatever sort of device near you, you can go to Exodus 17 if you want right now. Um, This time last year, this month last year, a woman named Amanda Eller, she got up one morning and she told her husband, you know, I want to go for a hike, and she lived in Maui, and there's this spot that's just beautiful. It's got 2,000 acres of just forest, and she told him, I'm going to this trail. It's just a three-mile trail, and I'm going to go up there, and she was really into yoga and meditation. She said, I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to do my yoga and my stuff, so I'm going to leave my phone in my car, and so I'll call you when I'm done with the trip, but you won't be able to get a hold of me. He's like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. It wasn't out of the normal, so she goes, gets on this trail and starts her hike, her three-mile hike. And as she's going, she sees something just beautiful right off the trail, just this beautiful scenery with waterfalls and trees, and the view is amazing. And so she goes, and she sits, and she does her yoga and her meditation, and she's there for a while. And after a moment, she goes, you know what? I should probably head home. My husband's going to start to worry. And she gets up to head back to go the way that she came, but she can't quite remember how she got there. And so she kind of looks for a little bit and she gets a little frustrated and she goes, okay, I know my car was generally this way. So I'm going to go that way. And so she starts walking and walking and walking. And what should have been just a three mile hike, taking maybe a few hours, ended up becoming a 17 day fight for her survival because she headed straight into the forest. And she ends up being super dehydrated, way malnourished. She ends up falling down the side of a hill and breaking some bones in her legs. And it's not until she finds a stream that she can follow to a waterfall that she then has to climb down with broken bones, that she's able to finally follow that to a town where she's able to get help and be hospitalized. And they can help her with all of the issues that she experienced from being 17 days lost in the forest. And when she was being asked about what had happened in her time, she said the most frustrating thing was every day knowing that I started off three miles away from my car. I started off right next to my car and was so frustrated knowing that it was just right around the corner. And if I just went in the right direction, I could have avoided all of that. It's one of those moments where if you could just have a drone, right, and just get some lift above all of the trees, above all the stuff that's blocking her view, she would be able to go, oh my gosh, the car's that way, and head straight to where her car is. But because she couldn't see over the trees, because she's stuck with her perspective and can't see any, can't see far around her because of the overgrown forest, she ends up getting greatly lost. And I think tonight, As we look at Exodus chapter 17, we kind of get some of that. We get that the people have become so surrounded by their circumstances, so surrounded by the bad stuff that's in front of them, they forget that God has come through for them. They forget to look towards God. Instead, they go off in a totally, completely different direction, a direction they shouldn't head down, and it doesn't lead them in good places. What we see is the very two chapters earlier in chapter 15 you have Israel has got no water. And they cry out to God, and God provides water. And in chapter 16, you have the Israelites have no food. So they cry out to God, and God provides every day, morning and night, except for the seventh day on the Sabbath. He provides for them food. So daily, they're getting food. Daily, they're receiving provision from God. And so as we read these stories, and we see that in chapter 17, you have 15, 16, we're in 17 tonight that the Israelites again grumble and complain and start to rebel against God and Moses, we could look at them and go, this is crazy. This is a crazy story. The people are constantly forgetting who their God is. They constantly forget that God just came through for them. The last time that they were in need, the last time they cried out, didn't God come through? Didn't he deliver? Can't you just remember what God has done? Don't you remember how God demonstrated his power with all of the plagues that if God did that for all of those months, he led you through the Red Sea, he's not going to abandon you now. You and I feel that way as we're reading through these chapters, because you and I have got some lift. You and I are looking at these stories from an outside perspective above their circumstances going, what are you guys doing? When really, when we are in those same circumstances, it's very easy for us to forget as well. Because our memories, our hearts are distorted. In these Old Testament stories, so often they're to make us feel like this. We walk into a room and you see on the wall just this hideous portrait. And you'd think, why would anyone paint that? Let alone hang it up on a wall only for you to realize it's a mirror, not a portrait. These stories are made for us to go, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And then you go, I, I do that, that's me. Our memories, our perspectives are distorted, and we need to get just a little bit of lift. If we could just have a little bit of the perspective that God has when we're in the midst of circumstances and things that can make us go off the rails, little things can make you go right off the trail and then go, God, what's going on? I'm lost. I'm hurting. I'm hopeless. If we could get just a little bit of lift, I believe you can get right back on track and remember, oh, my God's got me. These chapters in Exodus are supposed to make us go, man, God's got them. God's saying, I've got you. When we look at these stories, we're supposed to get a little bit of lift and be reminded our God's got us. We have a God who has got our backs, who sees us, who remembers us, who hears us, and who knows his people. So tonight, let's open up Exodus chapter 17. Water from the rock. Remember, God has just given victory to these people. God has just given victory to them over Pharaoh. God just came through for them in a spectacular, amazing, crazy way. And yet, right here, we're looking at them eager to rebel against Moses. And Moses is like, what am I going to do with these people? God, why are you guys testing the Lord? Don't you remember who he is? And I think what happens is just like the Israelites, our minds, we have a tendency to hold on to the negative. Where we, as people, we hold on to negative circumstances and our brains tend to filter out positive circumstances. I was thinking about this a lot after Matt shared a few weeks ago the quote It takes years to build up trust in any relationship and only seconds to destroy it, but forever to repair it. Because if someone who you really trust and love, does something that just totally disappoints you, totally lets you down, really hurts you, it'll take a hundred more positive interactions with that person for you to view them the same. If someone criticizes you and it just cuts you, it'll take hundreds of more compliments for you to finally be able to look at them the same way, for your relationship for them to be restored. And I think we do that with the Lord, where we hold on to negative things, where even if God has provided daily, God came through for you 30 minutes ago, our brains will remember the time when it felt like God didn't answer our prayer, even if it was 30 years ago. And then when we're in the midst of circumstances that are difficult, and we're in the midst of trials and hardship, our brain will say, don't you remember that? This is what always happens. Don't you Israelites remember the 400 years where God was silent? He's gonna do it again. Now that you've got no water, this is what's gonna happen. Even though God just came through for them 30 seconds ago, their mind is saying, yeah, but remember that time 30 years ago where he didn't come through? I think our brains do that. And I think even if God has given you victory recently, when we're in circumstances, our brain will say, oh, look, it, you're in the hard time again. Don't you remember the last time? And we have to be people who get lift. We have to be people who look in God's word because if the Bible teaches us anything about human nature— It's that total trust and obedience are rare in even the most godly person. Even the most godly person has difficulty completely trusting in God and obeying him, and we need to go to God's word and get some lift, get some of his perspective and be reminded, no, my God's got me. My God's given me victory daily. I know he's gonna come through for me. Verse three, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us Up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to Yahweh, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. It's really interesting me, interesting to me that God had Moses strike the rock, that the rock is where the water came out of it. That's where through that all the people were able to drink and live. Because if you're in a wilderness situation, if you're in a desert where it's just rocks and stones, the last place you're gonna look for water is on the top of a large boulder. It's in this most unlikely place that God's grace really comes through. And I think for us, it's in the really hard, difficult, unlikely spots that when we draw close to the Lord and we say, okay, God, provide for me, we see him provide in the hardest, most difficult places. And then everyone around can only say, wow, that was God. That was God who came through for you. It's in the moments of wilderness where all other sources of water have dried up that you have to go to God to get water from him. Verse seven. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? So guys, I've been so excited to talk about this story because it just blows my mind. Here's what happens. You have all the people of Israel who they quarrel with Moses. The quarreling gets so bad, they rename the campground quarreling. They rename the campground, this is where you were like that. It gets so bad that Moses comes to God and says, they're gonna stone me. I'm in fear for my life right now. Things are getting violent. You have all the people of Israel who are rebellious. They're, gonna, they're considering greatly committing treason against God. They're completely faithless. And God tells Moses in the midst of all this uncertainty, in the midst of all of this craziness, rebellion going on right now, he says, go and get the staff. And the staff was the item, the the tool, the mechanism that God used to demonstrate all of his power and to show all of the authority given over from God to Moses. When Moses took the staff to go and face Pharaoh, remember God said to bring it, he would use it and then God would do something. God would do a a plague. When they were at the the water, God said, "Hold hold out the staff and the waters parted. On the other side, God said, hold out the staff and the water came down. The staff was a symbol that showed all of the authority, all of the power that came from God that was given over to Moses. It also is a symbol of judgment. You can kind of think of like a modern day judge and his gavel. Like there's all these signs around town right now and vote on whoever judge and there's a sign of a gavel. And the gavel, symbolically, we know it, it doesn't actually serve any form or function, but symbolically what it shows is judgment. And it shows the ability to administer judgment and to seek justice. It shows all of the power and the authority given over to an individual by the state. Symbolically, it represents all of power, all the authority, all the ability to seek justice and to administer judgment. And so too, the staff, God says, go get the staff and then go get some of the elders of Israel the people were able to make a decision for all of the people of the tribe to kind of contest their position and they get them together. And what it looks like to me is almost like a courtroom proceeding. You have the staff, you've got the elders, you've got a rebellious people. And you have Moses saying, God, what am I gonna do with these people? And here's what's so interesting to me. And it's in verse six is it says, I will stand before you. God says to Moses, I will stand Before you, which to me blows my mind because in ancient literature, you would always say when there's two people, even if they're standing and facing each other, you would always say the subordinate stood before the next ranking officer. You'd always say the peasant stood before the king. You'd always say the lowly stood before those in high places. And what God says to Moses is, You go get the staff, get the elders and I will stand before you on the rock. And then he wants him to take the symbol of judgment, the symbol of God's power, the symbol of God's authority, and strike the rock where God will be. And out of that will come water that through it all the people will be able to live. Paul, he'll look back on this story in 1 Corinthians 4, and here's what he'll say. And all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. He'll look at the story and say, this is what Jesus did for us. We were rebellious people. We were a treasonous people. We were people that any prophet, any angel would even look and say, God, what are you going to do with these people? And what God did is he took all the judgment upon himself And because he did that, all the people were able to drink and have life. In fact, Jesus even will say in John chapter seven, verses 37 to 38, here's what happens. On the salt day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus says to all these people at this feast, hey, come to me and drink. Remember, he says to the woman at the well, hey, if if you, I can offer you water that will never run dry and you'll never be thirsty again. And you might like the Samaritan woman or might like the people at this feast be going, well, how, how does that work? How do you get water out of Jesus? For the Israelites, they just bend down, get a cup and they've got water. But how do you and I receive that? I think John unlocks it for us. In chapter 19, verses 31 through 34, where it's recounting the crucifixion. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The water that flowed from Jesus that's available for you and I to drink is mixed with his blood. That because Jesus took the wrath of God, because Jesus stood in our place, you and I are able to live. Our souls which are distorted, which have got sin in them, and the wages of sin is death. All of us are worthy of death because Jesus stood in our place. We are, are able to receive life. In this story, you and me were the Israelites. We've rebelled against God, we're constantly forgetful of all that He has done for us, but God took the punishment for all of our wrongdoing all of our transgression, all of our sin, our shame, our fear, our guilt. And Philippians 2, five through eight, says it so well about Jesus that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As crazy as it is, That God would say to Moses, I will stand before you, the creator of the entire universe, as John would say, the one that was in the beginning with God, was God, and all things are created through him and for him. That God was born as a baby boy to be a lowly servant, to give his life for rebellious, treasonous peoples that we may live. And just like John says in John 20, verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You get life by believing in Jesus. But that doesn't mean just by believing in Jesus that now everything is going to be good. It doesn't mean that now everything, you're out of the woods. There's not gonna be any more hardship. There's not gonna be any more tribulation or distress There's not going to be times of fear anymore. Instead, what you see, even in the Bible with Jesus, that when he gets baptized and his ministry really starts, the heavens open up and God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, you can't be doing things more right than for God to say from heaven, I'm pleased with you. What happens immediately after is he gets led to the wilderness to go and face Satan. He goes to go face a real Battle And what happens with the Israelites after this amazing experience, this amazing situation where God gives them all water in a moment when they were completely rebellious, what happens is a battle comes and it's a battle where low people will face an enemy that they're completely outclassed against people that they really cannot be They don't have the training. They don't have the education. They don't have the weaponry. It's kind of like you and me where we were were slaves to sin and to death. And now all of a sudden we find ourselves in a spiritual battle. We're completely outnumbered and outclassed, but we have a God who goes before us, who fights on our behalf. And it really matters on who you're gonna look to in the moments of battle. And that's what we see with the Israelites right here. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, "'Choose for us men.'" And go out to fight with Amalek. Who's Joshua? Is he a warrior? Is Joshua this battle hardened man? Is he someone who's gone through all the training to be a great leader, a great military strategist? No way. Joshua, months prior, was a mud brick baking slave. He's never held a sword before in his life, he's never sparred with someone, and now he's about to go face a real army a real enemy. He is not the guy that you want on your team right now. The odds are completely against him. But here's what happens. Moses continues, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses's hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Yahweh is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The very first thing that God wanted to have recorded in the Bible was not all the plagues that he had done, was not even the crossing of the Red Sea, though that ends up becoming the most iconic story of the Bible. Instead, the very first thing God wanted recorded was this battle. And in this battle, you have people who are outclassed, who shouldn't be able to have victory, but when their hands were lifted, when their hands were lifted up to God, the Lord showed up and the Lord gave them victory. When we raise our hands, the battle is won. So why do we praise? Why do we get together and we sing songs? Why do we lift up our hands to the Lord? We do so in saying, God, I don't know what to do right now. God, I need you to take control. God, I need you to win this battle for me. God, I need you to show up because I'm outclassed. God, the circumstances against me are overwhelming. I really need you to show up. When we lift up our hands and we praise, we're saying, God, I surrender to you. Lord, I want you to take control of this situation. God, I need you to show up because I need this battle to be won. And here's what you gotta see. Does Joshua remember this? No way. You can read the book of Joshua and he'll forget. He'll forget how God showed up against an enemy that he shouldn't be able to win and gave him victory. And if Joshua can forget, you and I are gonna forget too. Because our memories, our perspective, it's distorted. It's distorted. We need to be able to get lift. We have to be able to come back to these stories. And that's why God wanted it written down. He wanted Joshua to be able to come back, read this and say, oh, my God's got me. I don't have to freak out. My God's in control. You and I have to come to God's word consistently in hard times to seek him out. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us and give us the lift that we need to see over our circumstances and be reminded, oh, my God's got me. There's safety over here. There's comfort over here. There's peace over here. And over there's just 2,000 acres of forest that I don't wanna get lost in. We gotta get that lift from God's word. And then here's what happens next. You have, do people get saved because God stands in their place? You have a battle ensues, but God doesn't just save you and say, hey, there's gonna be some hard times, but endure. You and I are called to have common mission. You and I are called as God's people to do something now that you've been saved. And here's what happens in verse or chapter 18. You have someone who really unlikely to be saved gets saved because Moses shares good news with them. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses's father-in-law. So just real quick, think about that. You have Jethro who's a priest of Midian, a priest of a different god. He's a cult leader He serves a different God. He promotes the sacrifice to a different God. He serves in a temple of a different God. Okay, that's Moses' father-in-law. Heard of all God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, and coming to you, With your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And when they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent, then Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how Yahweh had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Yahweh had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. You have this priest of Midian, a man who's dedicated his life to the service of other gods, someone that anyone would look at and say, oh, not him. That guy's never gonna believe. I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna share with him because there's no way he would ever listen to me. That guy leaves this interaction saying, Yahweh's the God of above all gods. The God Moses is, he serves is greater than any other God that has ever been. You have the most unlikely person, a priest of Midian, recognizes Yahweh's supremacy because Moses shared with him, which probably was difficult for Moses. I know the most difficult thing for us to share the Lord isn't that we're going to be stoned or we're going to be thrown out of some place. The most difficult thing for you and me is shame that someone might not invite us back, that someone might look at us different, that now we're not going to be included anymore. There's probably that with Moses, where you've got a priest of Midian, someone Moses spent 40 years with. He lived with them. There had to be an element of that. But because Moses shared what happened, not only the good things. Moses didn't share just the victories, but he also shared all the hardship. Because Moses shared with his father-in-law, his father-in-law rejoices and says, your God is supreme. He shares not only the victory, but also all the hard times. And he's honest. And he says, here's what we've seen. Here's what we've faced. And here's how my God came through for me. Here's how he delivered me. And because of that, here's what Jethro does. Verse 12, and Jethro, Moses's father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Now he's in. He's sacrificing to Yahweh. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses's father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person And another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses, father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you But any small matter, they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all these people also will go to their place in peace. You gotta have people who are like-minded, who love Jesus around you. Even Moses, when he's in the middle of the battle and he's raising his hand, his arms get tired. He needs his two buddies to help him hold up his hands. He needs his two buddies to come around and support him. Over and over again in the Bible, you have these one to another verses where the Bible tells us, hey, this is how you're supposed to do life with one to another. You're to encourage one another to love and good works. You're to bear one another's burdens. That we are called as people to get other people who are like-minded, who love the Lord together with us to endure not only the hard things to come, not just the battles with the enemy, but even in the middle of doing really good things in ministry, you need help. You need other people to be with you. Jesus, he always had 12 friends with him as he was doing ministry. He always went places with his 12. You have to get yourself a crew that can help you, that can support you, that can encourage you so that when hard things come, you can endure. And not only that, But the people that you're ministering to, the people that you're serving, the people that you're trying to encourage in the ways of the Lord, they're able to go home to their place in peace. You gotta have a crew around you. In verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. You and I are called to minister to, to the people that are around us, whether it be your neighbor, whether it be your coworkers, whoever it is that God has placed in front of you, you and I are called to share with them, just like Moses did with Jethro. And it's very easy in ministry to be looking at what's in front of you and be really excited about it, at your sphere of influence. But then you could look at someone else's ability to influence and say, man, they've got crowds of thousands. Now I'm sitting here with crowds of tens. Or they got crowds of fifties and I'm sitting here with five. And we can get discouraged and we can get frustrated. But what I know about even God's, Jesus's crew that was around him. He had one, Peter, who, when he stood up the first time to share about Jesus, 3,000 people turn and get saved. And there are other disciples that, man, we don't, really don't hear much about them. But we know this, that they went to people's houses that they sought out small groups of people and they told them about the Lord and households were changed and that dad, he raised his kids in a different way to know about the Lord. And then those kids, they got married to their spouses and told them about the Lord and they told their kids about the Lord and this exponentially grew and Christianity, like wildfire, blew up. All of a sudden, Christians are just showing up everywhere because people are sharing about Jesus with every person that they meet, with every person they invest in. If you, we have Dick Worthington who says this to me almost every week. He says, if you can get one person to see Jesus, you will change the face of society forever. That our ministry with Jesus, it's exponential. You get one person to know Jesus and if you can get them to talk to 10, man, that's, that's 10 people you didn't have to. That's what Jethro is saying to Moses. Dude, you can't reach everyone. You gotta spread yourself out. You gotta replicate yourself. And it's so easy in ministry to look at what others are doing and get bogged down and go, oh man, I'm not speaking to thousands. The people that God has put in front of you, that's who God wants you to focus on today. To encourage your neighbor, to encourage your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your employers, whoever God has brought into your life, that's the person that God says is most important for you to speak truth into today. So don't get discouraged. Don't become someone who gets disoriented in the middle of hard times, looking at all the circumstances around us. Get some lift. Go to God's word. See that the car's just right over there. Don't go running off and spend days on the wrong stuff. Get some lift. In hard circumstances, we need that lift because we really are in a battle. And when we're in the battle, you gotta keep your hands up. You have to remember who goes and fights your battle for you. Seek Jesus out to go and stand before you and have victory over an enemy that you and I can't face on our own. And then finally, get a crew around you of like-minded believers who help you keep your hands up, who will help you share Jesus to other people, who will encourage you. And then don't get discouraged. If people don't listen, if it doesn't seem like lots of people are being changed, what we know is God's word does not come back void. And you and I are called as his servants to go and preach and proclaim and share the good news of people that everything in our being should show the kingdom of God. We're ambassadors of a holy nation. We we represent God's kingdom in everything we say and everything we do. It's a heavy burden, but what a wonderful, beautiful thing that God has entrusted to us. So guys, I pray this week, don't become overburdened by your circumstances. Get some lift. Seek Jesus even today. So Jesus, we're so thankful for your word that's able to reorient us, that's able to show us the way back to security, to peace, and to hope, because we know we serve the God of all hope. God, this day, I pray that we'd be people who keep our hands lifted in the midst of difficult circumstances and that we will see the battle be won, that we would drink from you and experience life, that we'd have peace amongst difficult circumstances because you're a God who sees, who hears, who knows, and who remembers us. You're not distant. You're here with us even now. It's in your name we pray, the mighty name of King Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week.